0: Now for our message, it will be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, A Pharisee and a Publican. Thank you, Sean. Well, good afternoon. I just want to point out that it's a Pharisee and a Publican, not a Republican, as someone had said earlier earlier. Uh, just to uh, kind of give you a little bit more information on my, my father uh, before I start here. I know Matt just gave the prayer request. Uh, he was up there yesterday. Uh, my dad went in on Thursday, and he's been having some problems with his kidneys. It seems to be spurred from some sort of illness that he got. He got sick and uh, essentially was just acting very lethargic. Uh, they did do tests that confirmed that his kidneys were not working. His kidneys have actually not been very good for a few years now. He's actually uh, been at, I think, stage four kidney failure for a few years, but he's taken medication for that. Uh, and so now it's worse because it's at stage five. And so the hope is, and I appreciate your prayers, is that his kidneys will improve, uh, and also the sickness, whatever infection he has in his body, uh, that he'll, he'll overcome that. Uh, I did get an update right before I came up here. Uh, my mother text messaged me as I was trying to find out you know if the doctor had came by today, and it looks like his kidneys are still kind of at the same as they were, uh, not really improving still and so uh, I think they 're trying to do what they can to, to to keep from doing dialysis and things like that and so uh, of course, God knows what the solution is, and the pra- uh, prayers are appreciated and uh, Uh, whether it be the kidneys are not functioning because of the infection uh, which is making it worse uh, who knows but thank you for the prayers Uh, he seems to be as matt said in good spirits he's very tired and groggy as far as just still not feeling the best but uh, definitely appreciate uh, your guys's prayers on that matter and so a pharisee and a publican we're going to go to luke the 18th chapter let's just start there and we're going to pick it up in this parable i've been kind of on a parable kick the last, oh, two or three times that I've spoke. And oftentimes, whenever I speak on one, it kind of leads me to another one. And I this one just kind of popped out at me because last time I spoke, uh, uh, or the time before that, it kind of led me to this parable, some of the things that the other parables were talking about. And Luke is an interesting gospel. Now, they're all, you know, Luke is part of the synoptic gospels, which we know are the three gospels that are connected to each other Uh, but right here in Luke the 18th chapter verses 9 uh, 9 through 14 we're going to read this it says also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others two men went up in the temple to pray one a pharisee and the other a tax collector the pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself God I thank you that I'm not like Other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, "God be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other, who for every one. Who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so, all of us, if we look at the context here, we know that there's a few things that we can kind of bring out. Jesus has been talking about prayer, and he's giving an example of two men praying. And just previous to this, we see that Jesus gave the parable of the persistent widow. Now, in this, we have two different individuals. One of them's a Pharisee, and one of them's a tax collector. Tax collectors sometimes are called publicans. Not republicans, but publicans. And in this day, they were at the opposite ends of the social and spiritual scales within Judaism. The Pharisees, as many of us understand, read about them because they're all throughout the gospels, were considered the epitome of righteousness. And tax collectors were considered the epitome of unrighteousness. And so they both, in this context, they're going to the temple. we know that the temple is the place that God has chose to place His presence, His name. And, of course, we can decide, or, or not decide, but debate whether or not that this was still the case in the first century. There's been a lot of history. We know in the beginning, though, when God brought out the Israelites, that He brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, and eventually gave them instructions of a tabernacle, which... Later on in history, they would take those instructions and they would make a permanent structure, a temple. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the Pharisee, and then I want to look at the tax collector or the publican. And just look at the contrast between these two individuals. Because I think that we all can understand that this is, this is a parable that's addressing someone who had a very self-righteous attitude. And I think it's easy sometimes to look at this Pharisee and say, oh man, look how, look how prideful and self-righteous they, they act. And think that somehow we don't have those temptations too. And I think that it's important to, to, to note that this is in here for our benefit. Not just so we can scoff at these individuals. But also to be mindful that even just as humans we have the same human nature sometimes. And we can be tempted to be like this first individual. Now the parable says that he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That they were righteous and despised others. That they looked down upon other people. And we can see in the context here the, the the demonstration of how he viewed other individuals, specifically the tax collector right beside him, by just his posture. He stands erect. He begins to open his open his mouth, never mentioning or referring to the characteristic of God or characteristics of God. Not praising God, thanking God for His righteousness. The only mention of God in this prayer, of course, is at the very beginning. And it's interesting because this passage says in verse 11, that the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now, most of us probably read English primarily. And this is originally written in Greek. And so if you look at some of the things that the the Greek scholars and experts will say, that this is a very sarcastic phrase. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Because really that's what he's doing in this context here. He focused on how his own attributes set him apart from other people, and he used the behavior of other people as the standard for his righteousness, not God's standard. Now, of course, this isn't the case with all Pharisees. I don't want you to think that I'm saying that all Pharisees were bad. There's a little history that we'll talk about in just a minute about Pharisees, and not all of it's bad. Not all Pharisees. Josephus says something like there are 6,000 Pharisees that were in existence during, generally during this period of time. And so we know not all of them. We're going to have this haughty, prideful mentality. But he focuses on his own behavior and compares that to other people. Other people are like his standard. Well, I'm better than they are. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector standing beside me i fast twice a week and i give tithes of all that i possess and that's in verse 11 and 12 in doing this the pharisee is citing all the outward characteristics that is in his mind showing that he has fulfilled the external requirements of the law he was uplifting himself and making himself the center of the prayer not god now, as I mentioned, just a note on Pharisees. Pharisees was a religious sect. The Sadducees were the ones that were primarily a part of the Sanhedrin, controlled the temple and things like that. But the Pharisees were a group of people that focused on a strict adherence to the law. And not only that, they also adhered to an oral law, an extra set, as sometimes you've called or heard called the oral law, uh, that eventually would be written down, by the way, in the Talmud. Okay? Uh, their actual name, Pharisee, comes from a Hebrew word that means separatist. And so that was their goal. I mean, the epitome of being a Pharisee was to be separate from the pagans. And in the early days of the group of Pharisees, there was probably some positive parts of this. Because in before Jesus, in the first century, there was a lot of paganism that was creeping in, or Hellenization, into the area that we call Israel or you know, Judea and things like that. And there was a group of people that came together and resisted allowing themselves to be Hellenized by the pagan culture of of Greek culture. And so when we think about this, just know that not all of it was bad. Obviously, there's a demonstration here that eventually it became very haughty, very focused on self. They got away from... Maybe their original purpose at one time, and that is trying to resist against paganism and the immorality that was coming in into their culture. I want us to go to Matthew the fifth chapter, though, because there's something very interesting that we've read so many times, and I think we focused on this, but oftentimes when we go to Matthew the fifth chapter, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, verse seventeen. We all know Matthew five, verse seventeen, it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets? I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I said to you till heaven and earth pass away one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And That's very interesting because we've used this passage before to demonstrate that Jesus had a, he wasn't doing away with the law. He says very plainly right here that he's upholding the law. Notice how he says jot or tittle. He's referring to the written law, not the extra external oral law that they hedged a fence around essentially the the written law of God. And he says in verse 19, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say, interesting part right here, verse 20, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's interesting, that last passage. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And right here, you have Jesus saying that you know that group that epitomizes righteousness? Yours better be more than theirs. And so he goes on after this, and he starts talking about common laws. Common laws of God. That they had all heard of before. And he takes it to a different level. But one thing that we notice in the next few chapters. The famous Sermon on the Mount. Is that he's always focused on the heart's intent. You see he's pointing at these Pharisees. Let's just call them individuals. That rely on the external look. The well I do this. I do this sacrifice. I do these ceremonies or these rituals. Look at me. Look how righteous I am. And there's never any focus on the heart. You know, Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, right? We we, we read that and we read about how God was going to make a new covenant that was written on the hearts and minds. You see, that's what God wants, right? He wants us to obey from the heart. Because that's what's really going to transform us. That's what's going to change us. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Is that your attitude and your approach is very important. Because he wants transformation to take place. And transformation does not take place from the outside in. Obviously it takes place from the inside out. And he will go on here in the Sermon on the Mount. And he will look at these things. And he will give examples. Whether it be adultery. Whether it be about forgiveness. Whether it be about all of these different things. That he elevates the law. And what I mean by elevates it. He makes it at a higher standard, the original standard, the intent, the the, the true character of God. We talk about how the law of God gives us and reveals the character of God, and it does that by means of the intent. When we keep the Sabbath, it's not just so we can go and say, well, hey, I keep the Sabbath, you know, right when sundown happened, I wasn't doing a single thing, and I came to church, and I took every single note, I wrote down every single scripture, and it's like this competition, right? Rather, it's not focused on that. It's focused on, I kept the Sabbath so I could fellowship with God. It was a desire I had to fellowship with God. It was an absolute appreciation to God that He let me know that this was one of His truths. This is one of His things that He gave me, He gave you as a gift. As a gift. Not because we're better than other people. Not because somehow... We're the elite because God called us. It wasn't anything from our own selves, and we just responded to that call. You know, it's interesting because I think that we can kind of, you know, just maybe even think some of our own church history sometimes. And I'm not going to, like, point anything out specific, but I know that we can talk about, you know, maybe sometimes it's easy to get into that, you know mindset of well you know they don't understand this or they don't understand the holy days or the sabbath or you go to a restaurant and you're sitting there eating breakfast somewhere and you look over at a table and someone's eating some bacon and you're like that sinner over there look at them eating that bacon I'm so glad I'm not like they are now of course uh, surely that hasn't happened I mean it probably has in some circles but obviously we don't teach promote that idea or that attitude here but just think about sometimes in our own church tradition, you know, and I'm not talking about specific church tradition, like things that we do, but just history, historically, you know, the, the, the mindset. Sometimes you can kind of, you know, get to a point where you're hearing a message in, 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 from someone or from a church or you're, you're reading a pamphlet from maybe a different church of God or something like that and I'm not putting them down and the whole thing's not about what you should do, the whole thing's about what you shouldn't do and why you don't want to be like them, like the world, like the worldly churches out there. The pagans, because they're worshiping Baal. We don't want to be like that. We, we worship the real God. They worship Baal. You haven't even heard of the Day of Atonement, have you? So, you know, those kinds of attitudes. And unfortunately, just to be real, some of those attitudes have happened before. that have come from traditionally or shall we say the Church of God tradition that we come out of. And so I think that it's important sometimes to think about that because you're never going to win people in a genuine, authentic way to get them to listen to you in the truths of God by doing it by means of saying that. You, I mean, there's obviously there's times to condemn. There's the, there are times to where you, put, you, you, you stand on the Word of God and you say that that is wicked. But you don't do it in a, in a, in a sense that you're wicked, I'm, I'm up here, you need to get to where I am. You point to Christ, not yourself. And that's what this guy, this problem's not pointing to God, he's pointing to himself. Now, the publican, on the other hand, just reread that section, reread that section about the, the publican. It says in verse 13 and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We see the publican here or we know that the tax collector. Had a totally different approach. Totally different approach. We have this individual that is a part of a group that is despised among all of the Jews, most of the Jews. In fact, to give you a little history of the tax collector, because you might be asking yourself the question, what exactly is a tax collector? And what's so wrong with collecting taxes? I mean, that's something that you need, right? Well, a tax collector in these days, sometimes called publicans, were a particular class of people that were utterly despised by the Jews for several reasons. They were employed, number one, by the Roman government, to collect taxes. Various taxes. But the problem was that they were allowed to go above and beyond what the Rome required. So say Rome requires, you know, $5 a month. You charge $7 or $8 a month. Keep the two or three dollars that you made extra, and you give the five dollars to Rome. They were extortionists, they were thieves, they were despised by most Jews. Looked at them, and a lot of them were Jewish, and they were looked at as being traitors to their home people. That they would go and work for the Roman government, the pagan presence that is occupying the promised land of Israel, and they were do it to help themselves out now when i was getting ready for this message there's an individual by the name of dwight pentecost Uh, he was a uh, bible expositor and he wrote a book on the parables a very good book and it wasn't like a real thick one but he just basically covers all the different little parts of the of the parables and i always like to reference his book because he's always got some interesting insight. And I just want to read a quick quote about the tax collector here and what he says in his book called The Parables of Jesus. On page 116 to 117, he says, The tax collector approached the place of prayer in quite a different attitude. First, he stood at a distance. He recognized that he was a sinner and unworthy to come into the presence of God. And he dared not even approach the temple where God was thought to be dwelling. Further, he would not even look up to heaven This, again, was outward sign of his recognition of his own unworthiness. And we know that if there's any requirement to come to Jesus, it is our recognition that we are not worthy. That we need his blood to cleanse our sins. To make us truly righteous. Nothing of ourselves. And, of course... We can get into this and say, well, look what Jesus said. Is he, like, okay with the sinners? Because he's not promoting the lifestyle of a publican or or a tax collector. He's not promoting that. But I think what Jesus is doing is, is he's showing us that, hey, you know that tax collector you think is so sinful and so horrible? You're all like that. You're all unworthy. As the scriptures say, our righteousness are like filthy rags. To God, This tax collector's attitude was the polar opposite of that of the Pharisees, or the Pharisee in this particular passage. And one of the last things that Jesus says here on this story, or in this story, in this parable in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." And we hear that over and over and over in the scriptures. We can look at Old Testament examples of individuals that rose up and boasted themselves up and God would humble them. This is a principle that we see demonstrated over and over and over. Right after the story, there comes this other interesting part. It's not necessarily a part. It's connected to this parable. But it's in Luke, the 18th chapter, the very next verse. And it says, talking about another group of people, then they, the people around, he's talking this parable, and all of a sudden afterwards, these children come to him. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And it seems interesting because you ask the question, well, who was showing him away? Was it Jesus' disciples? It seems that it's possible that it was. And maybe, even though Jesus gave this story about this parable of the, the tax collector and the publican, that they still didn't quite understand that Jesus and that God still looks at the lowest groups with favor. That he's still concerned with these groups. That he doesn't look at man like man looks at man. He doesn't evaluate and judge man and people like we tend to as humans, as carnal humans, tend to judge people. With this, there's another story that I want us to look at I think is a good example of children and I think this extension from this parable that leads into the story about Jesus talking about children and receiving children or receiving the kingdom of God as a little child let's go to Matthew the 18th chapter Matthew the 18th chapter so what we can know from this parable that we just read is that we have two different individuals one of them who thinks that they're everything that their righteousness just exceeds all other peoples. That they're not like the others. They're not like sinners. And the attitude is focused on self and what they've done. And the righteousness that they've accumulated. The other person, a sinner. Maybe has a profession that is immoral. Isn't right. But the attitude is the opposite. They acknowledge their shortcoming. They acknowledge their unworthiness to approach God. Matthew the 18th chapter is interesting because it's, it's a little bit of a, a, a turn here in what, what, what this message is about, but not completely because there's this other example that involves children. And this is what led me to go here because I think it's a great example of people who are being humbled because they've exalted themselves. Matthew 18 the 18th chapter, verse 1 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, as Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever sees one little child like this, in my name, receives me. And basically, the gist of this is that God desires humility. True conversion to Christ, when we see it by the Apostle Paul, by other individuals in the New Testament, we see humility. We don't see boastfulness in oneself. We see boastfulness only in Christ. Only in Christ. The disciples come to Jesus with this question regarding Who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be? Now that's an interesting question because you could say, well, they were just curious. There's just a curiosity here, but more likely it's inspired by a desire maybe to be named among one of those greatest in the kingdom, right? This very question seems to indicate that even Jesus' disciples, as carnal humans they were, like we are here today, still here in the flesh... Also dealt with the issue of pride. Some of the disciples were intent on having great positions in the kingdom of God. Just like we see humans today do. We see humans in churches. We see humans in businesses, corporations. All different aspects of life have a desire to be at the top. To have the notoriety. And what is interesting is how Jesus responds to this question by giving the example of children. Children was given as the illustration of humility. You want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom? Those who, like the great servant, have a heart to serve, have a heart for others, not on themselves. Now, this was shocking in the ancient Near East because children were regarded as inferior to adults. Now, our society similar, right? You know, we, we have a similar look at children to adults, but not nearly as extreme. In fact, as an example, when they were shooing the children away, it shows you that they look at, you know, children don't be interfering with important business of the human Jesus. He's out talking and teaching, and don't come to him. That's just a nuisance. But Jesus corrects that attitude. And we see that this attitude was reflected back in Luke at the end, right after the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Now, just to give you a little quote here from the InterVarsity Press background commentary on this passage, it says, The most powerless members of society were little children. In Jewish culture, children were loved, not despised. But the point is that they had no status apart from the love and no power or privileges apart from what they receive as total dependence on their parents. This humility results in godly dependence. Let's just think about children for a minute. As we know, young children, they're solely dependent on their parents, on their guardians, for everything. We know that they understand this. In fact, their nature... Is that they expect this? They look to their parents. They look to their guardians, they look to someone else taking care of them. Now think about it this way. We understand that that's true, but one of the big parts of that is is that they never are embarrassed by it. Children are embarrassed that their parents are taking care of them. But see, why I'm bringing that out is because sometimes we as adults, when someone has to help us with something, Sometimes it's easy not to take that help because we're thinking, man, I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be independent. I don't want to have to ask for help. And so I think what Jesus is getting at is not only are they totally dependent, but they're not embarrassed by it. They don't have such pride that they have to say, oh, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of right just on my own accord. Or, or I, I can kind of help myself do things. I'm, you know, I don't need anyone's help. And I think that was that's what Jesus is getting is that they're not only dependent but they are they accept that dependence. There's no there's no there's no pride in them that says, "Oh, I don't want to admit that, you know, I have to be fed by my parents or I don't make money." And, and I understand that this example might be kind of confusing, but I think that at, at the core of it what we're seeing is that children are not just dependent, but they lack any kind of pride or, you know, you know boastfulness that they might have in taking care of themselves they're totally okay with it and they actually uh, completely accept it and that's what God wants with us he doesn't want us to be embarrassed he doesn't want us to, to have you know any level of pride that might get in the way of having the required humility that we need to completely and totally and holistically rely and be dependent on him completely But here's the problem. This is the exact opposite of human nature, isn't it? We struggle admitting we are dependent. We want credit and credit that comes from ourselves. We like the idea of being independent and self-sufficient. If you were to do maybe a study on Jesus' encounters with the religious leaders of his day, you'll probably notice that a great number of conflicts he has with them has to do with their pride has to do with their boastfulness of what group they come from the refusal to admit that maybe they did not have everything right maybe they didn't have everything correct maybe they don't always do the things in such a righteous way as they like to boast about and let's face it it may be something even we as humans today can kind of sympathize with maybe in our own you know we believe in christ we believe that this is the word of god and we have strong convictions in the way that we look at the scriptures here and we do everything we can and sometimes we have doctrines which are i think are very sound but sometimes there are some non-essentials that maybe some of us will disagree on and maybe it's not necessarily a disagreement but maybe sees it a little bit differently whether this involves prophecy whether it involves timing of certain things in history and how certain things should be done in the here and now, what maybe with the holy day or something like that. And we don't want to be wrong. We want to be right. And of course, at the end of the day, we want to correctly interpret the Bible, of course, and that's what we hope to do. But that doesn't, that doesn't I think, contradict still having some humility Even in those things. And I don't have any example or anything specific. But sometimes, you know, we can kind of get fixed in our ways. And think my way is the right way. You know, my interpretation here is the right way. It's hard to admit sometimes when maybe we've made a mistake. Especially when what we are wrong about is a matter of something very important to us. Now, just to kind of continue on here. I want us to kind of consider the Apostle Paul obviously, we don't, you know, we, don't, we don't look at individuals as people or, or as the object of our worship, but we do have individuals in the Bible that we can thank God for. And I think the Apostle Paul, among many others, are individuals like that. We can kind of thank God for their story, and we can see their story, and we can say, wow, the power of God is very demonstrated in this person's story. And I think the Apostle Paul... Is a great illustration of this. Who was a man that was. Educated in all the knowledge. And understanding. According to the philosophies of the world. And we know that he was a Pharisee. And Pharisees. They were very educated. Especially individuals like Paul. That studied under one of the most. Renowned. I guess you would say. uh, Rabbis of the day. And he was schooled in virtually every language. That was relevant to him. Relevant to the cultures that. And which they lived in. And he was a true scholar of the day. I mean he would be considered a PhD. Probably in the theology of Judaism. As well as probably Hellenistic Greek thought. But listen to the words in 1 Corinthians. The second chapter verses 1 through 5. As he presents the gospel to this church in his letter. He says and I brethren when I came to you. I did not come with excellence of speech. Or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you. Except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men. But in the power of God. You see what's interesting about this and we'll see another passage is that paul had all this knowledge and and even though he had this knowledge he even got to experience the risen christ through sound through an approachment we understand that he probably didn't get to see jesus he was blinded but he had a very intimate relationship with christ coupled with all that knowledge But he didn't lean on any of that. He did not put faith in his own abilities whatsoever, which were many. But he put his faith in the power of God over his own. This includes his self-righteousness, or his own righteousness, his own skills, and his own talents. He understood all of those were solely because of the grace of God, and it wasn't him, but that God that supplied them. I think another example, we're not going to turn there, of course, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this prophet that's risen up, right? The Elijah, so to speak, to to, to prepare the way and the highways of the Lord. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, basically, as he increases, I should decrease. Less about me, more about him. I'm not even worthy to touch his sandal strap, basically. That right there. humility so I think there's some applicable principles that we can get from this we have to ask the question what is at the source of why humans have the tendency to sometimes think too highly of themselves over others I think that a lot of its common sense the obvious answer could be pride greed arrogance maybe even insecurities if we were to look back at that example of the Pharisees prayer the Pharisee's standard of righteousness was compared to other men, the tax collector. That that was the standard in which he evaluated himself that gave him confidence somehow that he was a righteous person. But Jesus demonstrates a different attitude that God treasures. One that truly chooses humility and dependence on God for righteousness. And we know Jesus. He frustrated a lot of these res- religious leaders. Because of his approach. Here you have this. I guess they would probably think this rogue preacher. Is coming out preaching. He's not going to the different circles. He's not coming to the, any of the Jewish groups per se. The, the official Jewish groups. Like the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Scribes, Sanhedrin. He didn't base his faith or. His sayings on man or or the metrics of what they thought about him. His faith or his righteousness in his mind was not based on the group that he belonged to or the special observances that he kept that obviously were outside of scripture. Don't get me wrong, we understand from even what we read, Jesus did uphold the law of God, the precepts of God. But he didn't base his righteousness on any of those. Now we know who he was. We know who Christ was. That he was that Logos. That decided to divest himself of of deity to become the one in whom we know is Jesus Christ. But he didn't boast on any of that. He completely and always pointed towards the Father. Another illustration of Paul which I wanted to bring out. Let's go to Philippians the third chapter here in closing. When we consider, consider that previous example of Paul, how he didn't, he didn't point to any of his accomplishments, any of his abilities and talents and his knowledge. He was a Pharisee with a high education, a bright future and a career in scholarship. A position that probably would have brought him a high degree of notoriety within Judaism. But he says this in Philippians, the third chapter. He says, beware of dogs... This is verse 2. Beware of evil workers. Beware of mutilation. For we are the circumcision. Who worship God in spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. And have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh. I more so. Circumcised the eighth day. Of the stock of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law. A Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. None of that he boasted about. None of that. He knew that even if he did all of those things, that his righteousness was still rubbish to God. That he still needed Christ. That he was still... Solely and completely reliant on Christ. Verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I also have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain, gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through Christ or faith in Christ rather. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Being comforted to his death. If by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All that other stuff was rubbish to him. Of course we know that a true longing for Christ. A true longing for fellowshipping. With Christ and fellow, you know, taking part in that fellowship of His death and His sufferings, as Paul talks about, we do through this life. We know that all of that is at the center of what Christianity is all about, and it's going to drive us, it's going to give us that spirit, it's going to drive us to be obedient to God, to the law, to the, to, to, to the true intent, not just the. By, you know the law says this, let me read it, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. But the spiritual side of it, the intent, the heart, the conversion, the, the, the transformation that takes place inside out. Not vice versa. What areas of our life do we struggle with? Pride, boasting, or arrogance? Is it knowledge in the Bible? Maybe we think we are superior in our knowledge of, of the Bible. Maybe it is our own righteousness. Maybe we look arrogantly to Our obedience to God, even subconsciously, maybe we don't even realize it. These are the things that you'll probably have to think of, all of us will have to think of, individually. Because we're all different people, and we experience different things, and we have different temptations. We all have temptations, but they're different. What you're tempted in doing might not be what I'm tempted in doing, and vice versa. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we... Coming to God in prayer, are we coming to God in our life in humility? Are humbling ourselves. Remember what Christ said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Because truly a follower of Christ is always only going to and I don't say only because even if we can be followers of Christ. We have moments of, of weakness. We have moments where we slip back in a, we have a carnal nature, of course. But that spirit's always going to drive us to exalt Christ, God, the characteristics of God. And anything that we could give this world, it's because the glory of God's coming through us. It's not of ourselves. I want to leave us with a quote. This is a Scottish preacher named James Denny. I always thought this quote was very interesting. I think it's fitting for the message that we just went over today. It says, no man give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. You can impress people with your cleverness or you can impress people or them with Jesus, but you can't do both.